My name is Jamie Keach, and you're listening to the Resource Insider Podcast, where we talk to CEOs, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs in the mining and metals industry. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our second podcast on day three of the Resource Insider Quarantine Edition. Normally, I do one of these podcasts every two to three weeks, sometimes longer. But as you can see, I am stranded or stuck at home and I've got a lot of time on my hands. So I am filling that by talking to some very interesting people that have good ideas uh, about what is going on in the world and can help hopefully shed a little bit of light about what we can expect coming down the pipeline in the natural resource space and hopefully the world in general because it is a very volatile time. Now, my guest today is none other than a gentleman named Scott Lapierre. And you who are normal listeners in the mining space might not have heard of Scott before because Scott works in oil and gas. And he is a petrophysicist. He's had 25 years of experience. He's worked for many, many different companies in many, many different projects. And he's got a very unique view, which we will be getting into in depth over the next, I don't know, half an hour or so. On this call, joining us, and this is our first three-way Resource Insider podcast, is Nick D'Onafrio. Uh Nick works for me. He is an analyst at Resource Insider. And whilst he's not been on one of our, our calls before, one of our podcasts before, he is doing a lot of work behind the scenes and is responsible for a lot of the research that makes our work so good and I think has made this podcast popular. He's here today because, frankly, he knows a lot more about the energy space than I do. And he's going to help uh, direct this conversation and he's going to have a lot of valuable input to add. So without further ado, let me please introduce Scott and Nick. Gents, thank you very much for taking the time to sit down today. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Thanks, Jamie. I'm looking forward to this podcast. All right, guys. So I think the best place to start here, uh, and we'll do a quick introduction, is who is Scott, what do you do, and why are we talking to you today? And Scott, I think you're the best one to answer that question. Okay, Jamie, thank you. Um, well, my name is Scott LaPierre. I uh, graduated with a degree in geology in 1995 and um, started my introduction into the oil industry uh, in the deep water Gulf of Mexico shelf uh, drilling environment where I was uh, operating um, sensors that they uh, that oil companies lower into a well bore to measure all sorts of properties about the rock so that they can determine how much oil is or isn't in the rock um, because drilling a well is very expensive uh, you can't lower a geologist on a rope into the well with a pickaxe and a, and a hand lens and figure out everything you need to know about the rock so the oil industry has technologies for measuring all sorts of properties um, remotely from a uh, from wireline tool they lower into a wellbore. Um, after 10 years of running that equipment, um, the next 10 years of my career, uh, I became an interpreter of that data. Um, I joined ConocoPhillips uh, in their subsurface technology group. And um, I started, uh, just as the shale revolution was starting, uh, I was given the task of trying to understand how to determine key rock properties from those measurements that I used to make um, so that we can uh, quantify the resource and, uh, and uh, identify, you know, and make maps. Uh, as the shale revolution, which was the gas shale revolution that started in 07, in 2010, the oil shale revolution started where we realized we could get oil out of shale rocks and not just gas. Um, I went off to join Pioneer Natural Resources to help them explore into the liquids window of shale resources. And over uh, that period of time, I, I, I uh, somewhat honed the ability to make oil in place maps for exploration. And then uh, a lot of projects were being explored off of that, and some were very successful uh, and hugely impactful for Pioneer. And another one, lesser degree, was a failure. So uh, I spent a couple of years studying those failures to try to understand what is it about these rocks that really makes them tick. And in doing that, I 
discovered what I consider to be the secret. It's the secret, even though I've been trying to share it for seven years, and it has to do with the actual source of energy to drive the oil to the surface. And um, I ended up uh, realizing the benefits from that, uh, and I started a company, a private exploration company, funded by a private equity provider, Natural Gas Partners. And in 2014, we founded the company, and we used this secret to identify the core high-performance area of the Midland Basin Shale, Wolf Camp Shale play. And we leased some acreage, we drilled four wells, and we sold it 18 months later to a public operator. And ever since then, 2016, I've been consulting, um, focusing a lot on reserves, um, how to predict uh, recoveries. Um, there's a lot of improvement to be made in the industry in terms of forecasting reserves and also optimizing drilling activity to make actual profits. Okay, so you mentioned you discover the secret. And I guess to put it broadly, this is the secret that that sort of helps dictate whether a shale deposit is successful or not. Is that right? Or is yes, or is, is going to meet expectations. Is going to meet expectations. It's the secret to forecasting what's going to happen more accurately. So let's get into that right now. I think that's going to be a big part of what we're talking about today. That'll lay the groundwork for everything, and then we can start talking about what's actually going on at the moment. So, Scott, what's the secret, man? We got to know. Okay. Well, um, it has to do with what's called the drive mechanism. Uh, most people think that oil is we suck it out of the ground. Um, that's not really true. I mean, we in certain instances, we do suck the oil out of the ground, but uh, the 100 million barrels a day that the world produces uh, and the 16 million a day that the U.S. produces, it's pushed to us. And it's that source of pressure and energy that's pushing the oil up to the surface to become production is where the secret lies. The, uh, the drive mechanism, which is that's the source of the energy, um, in general, you can think of it as just pressure inside the earth, right? It's actually the source of pressure and the way the pressure is conveyed. Um, the industry assumed it was the same mechanism that was driving production from the 80 years in the past where we were working with jars of marbles, kind of reservoirs where fluid was free to move between the marbles. Uh, and then, and, and to put it specifically, if you picture a Coca-Cola, um, Coca-Cola has CO2 dissolved in it and you pop the cap, you hear the pressure release. Yep. The dissolved CO2 comes out of solution and pressurizes that cap. And that's, if we have a straw at the bottom of the Coke, that gas pressure can produce the Coke up to the surface. That's the mechanism that we thought was happening, that the industry thought was, was dominant in these reservoirs, because it's been dominant in the past 80 years of working with conventional reservoirs. So that's, that's what happens in traditional oil deposits around the world, yes. Yes, picture. So how, uh -huh. how do these shale deposits differentiate from that? Well, um, the specific source of energy is not gas cap expansion. It's not the pressure generated from the CO2 coming out of a Coca-Cola, uh, which we all know from experience that that can be a lot of pressure. We make a mess with a fizzy Coke, right? The actual source of pressure is something that's well known. It's just always been a very minor contribution in the 80 years prior. And that is this oil, the liquid oil, um, two miles below the surface is bearing the weight of the rock above it, right? So tons and tons of rock above the oil so that the oil is actually compressed into a slightly smaller volume than it would be um, uh, than it would be if it were allowed to uh, experience a lower pressure environment, a lower stress environment, like a well bore. So when we drill the well and we frack the rock to release the rock because it's it's not marbles, it's really, really more like concrete. Um, when we release the oil into the low pressure well bore, the production appears because the oil is expanding ever so slightly and the overflow is the production. So the oil expansion is the dominant drive mechanism. In addition to that, um, that and again, just to be clear, just, you know, I'm being, I'm personifying a drop of oil here, but it's under two miles of rock. It's compressed smaller than it would be, even though we think of oil as incompressible, we think of water and liquids as incompressible. It's actually slightly compressed to a smaller volume 
that if you expose it to a lower stress environment, like the surface or a well bore leading to the surface, it just swells and relaxes and enlarges a little bit. So the way I'm picturing this is just like almost, almost puncturing a hole in any sort of compressed gas tank, whether it's an oxygen tank or whatever. If you're to stick a hole in that, just the gas expanding and release from that pressure, it's going to shoot out the top. Is that kind of what we're seeing here, that you're, you're providing an exit for a gas that's been put under pressure? Exactly, but with one big difference. Okay. The oil stops swelling once the pressure reaches what's called the bubble point. So that's when the CO2 starts bubbling out of the Coke. So if you imagine if I had a Coke here, and I don't, I'm sorry. If I had a Coke here in the bottle, you would just see black Coke and then a clear space at the top of the bottle. The CO2 is in solution. But when I release the pressure in the, in the, in the, in the Coke, you see bubbles. Yeah. I, dropped, I dropped the Coke below the bubble point and then the gas comes out of solution. So this is basically the equivalent of a Coke going flat. It's exactly. like the oil reserve or the gas reserve has gone flat at this point. So there's not that pressure coming up that actually exactly. pushes it out the hole. In addition to, so, and here's the double whammy. The reason why shale wells, in my opinion, uh, and uh, the reason why shale wells are, are uh, declining and ending their lives sooner than expected is because once the pressure is drawn to the bubble point, the expansion mechanism ceases. And actually, as gas comes out of solution, the liquid actually shrinks as matter is lost to gas. So the oil expansion shuts down abruptly at the bubble point. And then on top of that, now we have abundant gas competing with the oil to exit the reservoir. And the gas is more fluid, less viscous. It, it, it's easier. It, it wins that battle every time. So the gas starts producing preferential. Right. So it's a double whammy, which is why if you look at some of my work and some of my reports and presentations, you'll see uh, the character, uh, the characters in the production profiles that I show where that, and that's the explanation that I came up with as you know, I discovered it in 2013. Um, and I've been trying to share it ever since, but I, I've been so, unable. To share. So, why is this important? Why should people care about this? It changes the entire way uh, you think about developing your acreage. It, for one thing, the big breakthrough. So, so this the secret, you know, why didn't anybody want to believe the secret? Because there's a negative connotation with it. You instantly recognize that the amount of oil that can be recovered from the ground is finite. It's knowable. The beautiful part about the secret is that you can pre-calculate the amount of expansion that's going to occur. You can predetermine the recovery factor, which is something the industry has never been able to do. So if I have a map of oil in, in place, which is something that we've been generating for years, I can now make a map of recovery factor, combine it with the oil in the ground, and instantly I have a map of recoverable oil in place due to primary recovery. That's a new breakthrough. And so that means like, um, in some of these big cube developments that have been written about in the news. I don't know if you follow like the Wall Street Journal article from July on uh, uh, a cube development is a kind of development that's supposed to be efficient with uh, because you drill all the wells all spaced together in the acreage at once and then produce them all at once. You stimulate them all at once. So it makes everything really efficient. But um, without using this concept, those, those uh, experiments have been failures because there's too many wells um, trying to drain too little a hot resource, which causes all the wells to be uneconomic. So this secret, I keep calling it secret, I, I wish it wasn't a secret, <laughs> um, is uh, it completely changes the way you think about how many wells um, is the perfect number of wells to drain all of the resource and make the most profit. And so my company, Shale Specialists, is we're out here marketing, you know, these, these tools and technologies that have evolved from the discovery of the primary drive mechanism being predeterminable. Um, so the advantage to this, I guess, is that you can actually value a land package or a well very, very accurately uh, in a way that you previously hadn't been able to. And you can optimize for this. The disadvantage of this is 
I would guess that a lot of these wells and land packages and claims all over the U.S. are worth a lot less than people are saying they are worth or think they are worth. Am I am I correct on that? That's 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 correct. So what's what's the reaction been to your um, to your to, to the secret? To what's the reaction been to this theory from the oil and gas companies that are you know after this that have these land that have that have this land and are you know valuing this at much higher valuations than you than you believe they're worth? Um, it's been difficult to get audiences, um, but it's become much easier to get audiences. Uh, since January 2nd, 2019, when the Wall Street Journal got involved and wrote this um, key article on fracking's secret problem, oil wells aren't producing as much as their owners forecast. Um, so that, that's, since that article, it's become more, more common discussion about how, how we're not making money um, like, we, like we expected to be, like we sort of uh, promised Wall Street we would be making money. Um, so it's gotten easier to talk to people, and I, I have some private custom companies uh, seem to be more receptive because they're interested in long-term private companies are interested in making profit selling oil, whereas uh, a lot of publicly traded companies are really, really dead set on flipping the company. Yeah. And so, okay, let's, let's talk about that for a second. What is the opportunity here for people that want to take a serious look at selling oil and are willing to take this data on board and account it in what they're doing? And you know, what, what's the upside for people that want to take an honest look at what's going on? Well, I guess if you're in the acquisition and, and divestiture space, um, you know, you can, you can generate a real, uh, a buy side evaluation of, of property. Um, but the way it's been, I, this, this, this technology, I'll stop calling it the secret. I'll start calling it this technology. This technology was always an advantage to the buy side. Um, it's not a sell side because everybody's, uh, everybody got over their ski tips with their promises from the get go. And to go back to your previous question, it's been really, really difficult to, to get because executives and middle managers and industry leaders uh, kind of have to own up to having been wrong. And it's just a human nature resisting to do that. But the, the upside potential really is on the buy side. Um, for me, you know, and this is in some of my marketing, the, the upside is, you know, pick a company like uh, Centennial Resource Development. Um, they, I believe they have some good acreage, okay? Um, but they're not developing it properly. In fact, they're now, prior to the coronavirus, they were, you know, kind of one of those companies that's on the list of companies headed bankrupt. And Mark Papa, the CEO, retired um, just recently and handed over the reins. But a company like that, you know, we could go in there with this knowledge for the upside for them, and we can, you know, rather instantly translate, uh, uh, turn their development program into a moneymaker by spacing the wells the perfect spacing based off of this new knowledge. And so that company could see the upside as, you know, being one of the first to regain investor confidence with reliable forecasts because the reliable, unreliable forecast has been a big reason why Wall Street's walked away. Yeah. Uh, so there's upside for the individual companies to use my technology, but for investors, you can choose the companies, um, you can value assets and companies more reliably with these concepts. Uh, so you've been you've been kind of talking about this for about seven years now. Um, I know it hasn't really been been catching on. Um, do you think it's going to start to catch on a little more quickly now that we're kind of coming to the end of the life cycle of these wells and we're going to start seeing your work validated? Um, whereas maybe seven years ago, you know, these wells were just drilled, and if you're coming in saying that they're valued at less, there's not as much oil in the ground as there they think there is. You know, they're like, listen, we don't want to hear that right now. But as it starts to come to fruition, this um, will start to really be seen, especially in these public companies. I hope so. I mean, I, 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 I just, you know, thought I was following my nose, you know, doing science, you know, just thinking that I was going to discover something useful and value in all my science. And I did discover something useful and valuable. And ideally, you know, one day people will recognize that and want to use it. Um, 
it's just unfortunate that it happened to be, you know, um, contradictory to the original sort of overzealous promises that were made. So there's cultural, uh, human nature, I don't know what's going to happen. I, I certainly hope it pays off because I have some, some great intellectual property. I have patents. Um, I am excited about one patent where I, 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 I have a new forecast technology um, to integrate uh, the gas oil ratio, which is an important part of uh, oil and gas production, to predict the premature terminal decline that's occurring. Um, but it requires the world to want to forecast accurately. <laughs> and there's interesting article, uh, December 23rd by the Wall Street Journal um, last year that just showed that, uh, that banks who loan money on reserves have, some of them have been losing money believing the reserve estimates provided by the third party reserve auditors. And so for the first time, you know, at least in 20 years, the banks are discounting the certified reserve auditors, reserve estimates to value their loan risk because they're losing money and they're, and, and this is really a, really a, uh, this should be a concerning problem to, you know, to everyone that uh, we are so unable as an industry to forecast accurately what's going to happen when we drill a well, shale well, um, that uh, finger pointing is going on, you know, and, and, and the banks are saying, yeah, you know what, that certified third party auditor that's been certifying these, this collateral for years, uh, we've been getting burned following that valuation. We're going to discount based on our own loss experience in this particular basin or this particular part of the world. So they may be offering like, um, if you go to them with your, your reserves, forecast reserves for producing proved reserves, um, if you're in the core of the Midland Basin, they may say, okay, we'll give you a PV8 valuation for the loan. Um, you know, so you have 8% hurdle rate, right? Um, but if you're in scoop stack in Oklahoma, a bank might offer you a PV30 because they, they've been burned on those reserves before. So that, that's really an astounding sort of development in my mind. And it did get the press on December 23rd, but you know, uh, the in, I would think that the reserve auditors, who I am trying to reach out to with my technologies and solutions, I would think that eventually they'll, they'll wanna come around and, and incorporate new tools to, to improve forecasts. So, you know, listening to you talk here, Scott, it kind of sounds like the emperor's new clothes story where people have been, you know, dressed or pretending to be dressed up in something that's really not there. And given, and I'm speculating here, but given the environment we're, at, we're entering right now, given what's going on with the coronavirus, given the fact that what oil is pushing up at something like $20 a barrel right now, that it's going to be a lot more difficult to I guess, maintain the charade. Would you guys agree with that? Oh, yeah. Oh, the, oh yeah. Uh, yeah, because right before the coronavirus occurred, we were in a couple of quarters where Wall Street said, okay, uh, we re-incentivized all of the management teams and executive teams with, you know, focus on Rochi and positive free cash flow uh, instead of uh, production growth, which is what it was before. Um, so here you are, show us the positive free cash flow. And basically, right before, right before the coronavirus came, there was a couple of quarters where Wall Street basically, if I can characterize sort of my sense of how things have been going, uh, went to look at the earnings and say, okay, well, where's the positive free cash flow this quarter? And they haven't been convinced that companies are actually delivering it. Um, you hear things like, you've been hearing things like, we have a dramatically improved cash flow trajectory. You know, it's all, you know, positive free cash flow is kind of just around the corner, always just around the corner. Uh, and that was preceding the, share, the coronavirus. Um, so you throw in $30, $20 oil, and absolutely it accelerates the problem. Now, here, here's what I want to do. Uh, here, here's what, here, I, I'm, I'm still confident. You know, the shale resource in America is a huge gift. And the actual geologic history of the, of the lower 48 over the last 500 million years has blessed us with a very unique, unique accumulation of the highest concentration of hydrocarbon on the planet in the Permian Basin. Um, there are 13 different intervals that have been become source rocks. It absolutely is unparalleled on Earth, the amount of oil in the rock. Of course, we need to learn how to get it out economically, um, and I believe we can do that. So one of the challenges that I'm taking on myself 
in the coronavirus is I'm developing an optimization of one of those popular cube developments that were written about that, were, that failed, um, according to the Wall Street Journal. I'm going to design a spacing and a stimulation for that to make money at $22 and $1.61 gas to try to show that, you know, you know, I do get a rap of being a, 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 a wet blanket raining on parades and stuff like that. <laughs> now, but in reality, you know, uh, we, we can make a profit. Now, not everybody's going to be able to make a profit at $22 a barrel, but I'm, I'm confident that um, I can pick acreage for a company and design a, a, a spacing program and a stimulation program that will. Now, Scott, you, you, you have done this before with your, your company that was um, backed by the, the private equity money that you're talking about. Um, before can you explain that a little bit? I, I, know, I know you kind of picked the, a, a short-term peak at one point when you were buying and you sold it at a low, but still decided to come, you still were able to come out, you know, on top here. Yeah, the, the strategy at the time, so oil was 105 when we were doing this. And if it would have stayed 105, well, I wouldn't be having this conversation with you. You wouldn't be able to track me down. <laughs> I'd be on a yacht somewhere. <laughs> um, uh, but no, seriously, uh, the idea, because we, we watched the Eagleford blossom, you know, uh, the Eagleford valua valuations price per acre to lease the land for three years to drill the oil. Those prices were well above the actual cost of the land, the value of the dirt. And those skyrocketed and you know what we saw happen my team my friends you know in our jobs what we saw happening is like uh just when you thought a, a, a transaction in the eagleford for people to get into the eagleford play go off at twenty five thousand dollars an acre um you thought wow that's an incredible price you, another package came along a year later and it sold for sixty thousand an acre and the core of the core, it starts out, everybody's paying, overpaying for everything, thinking everything is awesome. And the core of the core in the Eagleford eventually revealed itself. And there were people who successfully transacted at $85,000 an acre. For dirt, you could probably buy for $1,500. <laughs> but the point <laughs> is, is that the valuation skyrocketed because the, the core revealed itself. Um, so our technology, uh, the secret, um, was that you can pre-identify uh, you can make a map of the recoverable oil in place, and that is the core. That is the high, highest you know, return potential, re recovery potential for oil, highest return potential for profit. That's the core. So we did identify the core at a time in 2014 where everybody said everything, everywhere was the core. And so our confidence was that same thing happened in the Eagleford, which was maturing before the, the Midland Basin. We said, okay, look, the... Uh, I know here's, here's where the core is. Uh, we can go in and, 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 and pay what seems like an exorbitant price today. Um, even though we didn't have to pay that higher price, we actually, we actually procured the land um, very low costs. And sure enough, by the time we sold and we drilled our wells and proved the potential, um, you know, it was obviously the core. So even though oil went from, from 105 to $36 a barrel, um, it was still during a time of, uh, you know, super excitement about growth opportunities in the shale revolution. So we, we were able to return, uh, you know, 133% IRR and a 3.2 ROI in 18 months. So that it worked so, out. So Scott, if I can try to summarize there is what, so is what happened, you basically identified the most prospective ground in terms of a, from a recovery perspective, where this, whether this expanding effect of the of the oil is, I guess, at its fullest, and you're able to get the most, uh, I mean, the most per volume out of yep. the actual ground. So you were able to identify that you in a declining oil price environment. You guys drilled it, you recovered it, and still made money despite the fact that gold went, or not gold. See, I'm talking like a mining person again. The, the, <laughs> despite the fact that oil went from over a hundred dollars to thirty six dollars a barrel. Yes. Now I will just uh, clarify two things there. One is um, we couldn't get exactly the core because it was already owned, yeah. but we got as close to it as possible. Okay. And then the other thing, uh, the other thing is that just, just to, to make it uh, easy to, to picture, there's really two parameters, right? The amount of oil in the rock, which can be small or can be huge. And the amount of expansion that's going to occur to that oil, which can be huge or small. 
The perfect combination is the most oil on earth in one spot with the biggest expansion on earth in one spot. The Midland Basin is um, top 15 percentile on oil in place, but the best recovery factor, the best amount of expansion that occurs is P25, P50. So, so the, 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 to make a shale play work, you can either have a bunch of oil that's gonna expand a modest amount, or you can have a bunch of, uh, a, a, a modest amount of oil that's gonna expand a whole lot. And so those are the two parameters that, that are the, in my opinion, and in my whole practice, those are the two parameters that, that come together to define commerciality of the shale plant. Scott, so as we um, enter this last part of our discussion here, could you kind of touch on what the current shale environment looks like um, and why we're seeing uh, U.S. production at all-time highs despite declining oil prices? Yeah. Um, well, uh, as I mentioned earlier in one of those other discussions that, you know, for the first 10 years, it was production growth, right? You were awarded on a production growth. Um, the, the whole industry, the independent shale producer has always been a production growth oriented sort of mindset, um, you know, because that's how they build value. You build value in having proved reserves. Um, uh, and so um, that was you know, from 2010, 13, 14, all the way up to 2000 and the end of 2018 was the focus. Um, and so making a profit wasn't really, um, that's not really, that's not really in there. <laughs> that's not really a, an incentive <laughs> for management teams. Okay. Um, I mean, it was for us, but we were designed to flip. Um, so, you know, you had all this momentum going into building production without a focus on um, without a focus on profitability, and right as you know, right as the stumbling started occurring, um, and one of my uh, rise to fames in a negative way was I predicted the stumbles when I first saw a glimpse of my theory manifesting in in certain companies, and I wrote an article on LinkedIn. And it went viral after my predictions happened, you know, to become true two weeks later in one company's, a couple of companies' earnings releases. But in 2017 into 18, the focus started, you know, hey, we, you're destroying capital. We want to return. Um, so, you know, there was this momentum. It started changing. And then basically right about now, before the coronavirus is, we, the whole focus is on, okay, let's see how much profit you can make with your program. And that has been a couple of quarters of not really convincing, but in some cases convincing that they're going to actually be able to make a profit. And then boom, coronavirus comes in. And so this just, it was a uphill sort of against the wind, um, sort of a challenge against the wind challenge. And now it's against a hurricane, you know, $22. Yeah. yeah. Is, is part of this um, kind of perfect storm coming together due to debt, the debt financing in the sector? Well, I've heard a lot about that. There is a lot of debt, and and um, a lot of the people who who do talk about the who speak towards their you know their estimate of the future of the shale industry um, always mentions this debt wall, these uh, bond maturities in 2021, 20, 22. Um, that that a lot of people talk about how that's a key that's a key hurdle. Uh, are these companies going to be able to refinance that debt um, if they're failing to deliver? still the kinds of returns that are expected of them. So a lot of people speak to that being a huge problem. The coronavirus makes all of that be more as long as this, but in reality, you know, companies are hedged, like, you know, not a hundred percent because it hasn't been a, there hasn't been, a, you know, the dynamics in the commodity strip and the futures prices to really hedge far out into the future. Um, but then the optimism is that the price of oil is going to go up in the future. Uh, but there's companies that are hedged that this should not be a big deal to, you know, assuming that this coronavirus will pass, assuming that global demand will pick up and assuming that life will return to normal and the price of oil will return to normal. Um, so the companies that were hedged should see the opposite effect in their stock when it, when, when proof, if they if they actually are able to make a profit, you know, because they're not going to be paying, they're not going to be getting paid $22. They're going to be getting paid 51. So th there's companies in this mix that are being sold off that probably shouldn't be sold off. 
are there are there any that come to mind that that you're looking at right now that you think you know this is a good opportunity if you're an investor at home and and someone like me who has little exposure to the oil and gas stage or oil and gas space at this moment if i'm looking at okay look at this is a good time to start getting in when gold is at or not i can't do it i can't say oil instead of gold <laughs> when oil is at uh you know 22 dollars a barrel where should i be looking well I, I'll just say, I, I like Pioneer Natural Resources, um, but only if they, uh, if they adopt to this way of thinking that, you know, that involves the improvements that I've been working on. They have good acreage for that. I like Parsley. Um, I, think, I think that uh, their acreage value is there, and if, if I I like them in these prices. I don't like them before the coronavirus, but I actually bought parsley at five bucks the other day. Um, you know, this kind of to me seems like a bit of an opportunity for some of these companies because their, you know, their share price is going to be decimated regardless of what they do right now. This might be a good time for them to say, oh, you know, by the way, we didn't have as much as we thought we had and things are a little different and kind of kind of slip that in there when things are going to go to shit regardless and then kind of rejig when things start coming back. I feel like even if they have to reevaluate their reserves, they're probably not going to get hit much worse than they're going to get hit anyways at this point. Right. You're right. So it would be a good point. It would be a good opportunity for, for the industry to try to get on the right path. So hopefully that means they're going to be calling me and more receptive to letting me use this analysis technologies to help them do that. But, but I think you're right. And I, I, I back to Nick's question on um, how oil is increasing while the price is decreasing. Um, part of this is, uh, yeah, well, obviously the, the cure for low prices is low prices. They always say, uh, but, but, but part of this is that the tremendous growth in U S shale production um, if you look at my work and my theories and the evidence and all the things and the predictions that have come true with this work and this theory, uh, it shows you that the uh, tremendous volume of production that the U.S. has produced right now, 17 million barrels a day, is very short-term, very, very short-lived. The declines on these wells, we've always known that shale oil wells decline fast. The reality is they decline even faster than people have expected. So we may have this incredible growth in, in US shale production, but it's going to peak. I probably, it's probably peaking, it peaked right now because capital budgets, Parsley just announced 40% reduction in capital budget. Um, so, and, and on that note too, uh, I guess it'd be good to, to mention that the solution that people made, the independent operators have made, because the health of the industry is horrible right now, but the, one of the solutions, the attempts to, 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 to breach, break into profitability was uh, cutting G&A. So they laid off a lot of people to try to streamline to make the profits. And in my opinion, and in my work, the core of the, the problem with the financial profits generated by the oil industry, the shale industry, are this. In order to make positive free cash flow, you have to have today's capital be offset by tomorrow's revenue from production. And if two to five years out, that production is falling short of your expectation, then the only way you're going to generate positive free cash flow is if the price of oil rises. So, you know, I, I just kind of got off on a different subject there, but I believe the U.S. oil production is peaking. I think it's peaked, it peaked you know, it's peaking right now. So Last you mentioned, hmm? oh, sorry about that. Um, so you mentioned a lot of these companies are not, uh, Cash flow positive, they're negative. Um, are they then borrowing against their reserves to drill more to meet debt payments to service, uh, or I guess to keep on their operations? And they're finding it difficult to do that. The money is now being cut off. The last bastion of capital comes from the reserve-based loans. That's the the capital. The equity market shut down in eighteen, certainly in nineteen. So you know, stock issuances aren't going to pay for anything. Um, the uh, bond market, you know, they're, they're all junk, uh, not all of them, but, but you know, that, those have gone south. And the last bastion of capital is reserve-based lending. And, and in December 23rd, Wall Street Journal article shows that that's coming under pressure. So they are, 
they are, um, and again, as we speak, everybody's cutting capital budgets by huge amounts um, in response to this. So U.S. oil production is going to come down, and I believe it's going to come down faster than than uh, everyone else is anticipating. And so, I want to get back. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no. Uh, sorry. Let me finish your thoughts. I want to. I want to stress the health, the situation of the oil industry. It is very unhealthy. It's very unhealthy. Um, right, just let me give you an example. Um, we're in a recession where people are being laid off in mass, and it has nothing to do with the price of oil structurally. The price of oil has been relatively flat. The price of oil has been at a price where executives and board members have declared they would be profitable, but they haven't been. So we're in a recession that's been caused by our industry's inability to deliver on past promises. It's not a recession because of the price. I mean, it is now, like coronavirus now. So it's so unhealthy, you know, and, and if you listen to the conference calls, the earnings calls for the, the operators, you hear things like, we've got well costs down 25% this quarter. What you, what you got a picture on the other end of that is a service company going bankrupt, like Weatherford going bankrupt. I heard or read an article that Schlumberger, Big Blue, the massive service company, is considering selling their North American division. This is unhealthy, unsustainable. And all the while, I'm gonna put on my patriotic human earth representative hat, all the while, the deep water fleet, Transocean, Diamond Offshore, these billion dollar fleets of semi-submersible, submersible jack-up, all these rigs that have, that have drilled all of the, the the long-lasting oil reserves that, that the world has are rusting away. Transocean is, is, was a, in, under $2 stock. They're not too big to fail, but their fleets are too strategic of a resource to the humankind to let go bust. I'd love to see like a Warren Buffett come in and say, I'm gonna buy Transocean. Because once, once and I, I own Transocean, but I've lost a lot of money since the coronavirus one, but once, the reality of the limitations of U.S. shale oil production are acknowledged and observed by everyone. There's going to be, I believe, a return to deep water. I just hope and pray that it happens before Transocean Diamond Offshore rusts away into bankruptcy, because then there will be no fleets to drill these, these the real long-lasting reserves that are the conventional reservoirs offshore. So. It's a really messed up situation. And, and, and maybe this coronavirus is the cure. Maybe accelerating the realization, the bankruptcies, accelerating the realization may be a blessing in disguise because I'm telling you, I weigh the earth. I make maps of the, every drop of oil that can be recovered from primary means all over the world. Uh, I, I need a new planet to find more oil, okay? I have an appreciation for how hard it is to find, how rare it is, despite the abundance we now see. And once the reality of the shale uh, limitations is observed, um, there's going to be, we're, we're out. <laughs> we're out. Saudi's out. Why do you think Saudi Arabia is IPOing their, why do you think Saudi Arabia is IPOing their, their Saudi Aramco? They're selling an asset. You sell an asset. It doesn't matter if you're the prince of West Texas or the prince of Saudi Arabia. You sell your asset when you know internally in your data that it's done. <laughs> and, but everybody's external data, um, they believe all your, your bullshit and they think it's still glorious. So Saudi Vision 2030, they're out. That, that's, <laughs> they're out, right? Shale revolution, it's, it's, got, it's got potential legs to it if we do it right, but it's a flash in the pan. The 17 million is a flash, in, 17 million a day is a flash in the pan. So, and, and, and this is me getting poetic. In 19, I think it's 1970. And here's my analogy, 1971 oil peaked. Okay, US oil production peaked the, in 73, the oil embargo, uh, revenge from the Israeli war. Uh, and then in 78, you had the, uh, uh, or is the embargo, you, had, you know, we had the two price spikes that caused the end of the muscle car era, right? The pinnacle, the pinnacle of the automobile gas consumption muscle car era was the 1971 Corvette LS6. It was a 454. 
in the Corvette. And if you, if you ordered it right, you could have got an aluminum block, you know, 500 horsepower, right? This is 1971. Um, I believe that the Dodge Demon, the uh, C8 Corvette, the uh, Hellcat, the uh, Mustang GT350 today, these six, 700 horsepower cars, this 1971. This is too many decades of cheap oil. And to me, it's poetically the same that this is, we are about to realize that we don't have anywhere near much as, as much oil as we, we need. So um, as we kind of see, you say cheap oil coming to an end, where is it going to go next? Like, how do you see this playing out? Well, you know, I, I, I may be wrong. I've been wrong uh, plenty of times. Mm -hmm. Um, but I see, I see oil, I see oil, I see, I see 1970, well, I think repeat 1971 through 1986, we're going to have, we're going to have, 1986-87 was a crash because of all the drilling that took place because of the price, price spikes in 1973 and 78. So, you know, the oil industry is boom and bust. I'm sure the mining industry is similar. Um, so, it'll repeat itself. So will oil prices will spike after all of this when, when U.S. is 17 million barrels a day becomes, you know, 11. Um, and Saudi Arabia is not able to, uh, to deliver any more oil um, above any kind of quota to control the prices. Um, oil's going to spike. I just hope that there's a deep water fleet still intact with the technology to drill it safely. Otherwise, well, I don't know, global war for, for oil, like it's happened in the past. I don't know. I, I just, you know, I, I may be pessimistic, but uh, that's just my view. And I, and I really hope that, I really hope for the sake of the industry's health, for regaining constant confidence and regaining dignity, that we, we right the ship uh, before we lose things that are dear and precious, like global deep water drilling fleets, you know. So what do you say to the more environmentally inclined crowd out there that would say, well, this is a good thing. There's going to be a lot less uh, oil production in the world and don't worry because green energy is going to pick up the slack and we're all going to be driving electric cars in 10 years anyways. Well, I mean, if you, if you throw another 73 or 78, 1973 or 1978 on us, I believe the electric car, the electric car finishes its full blossom. You know, um, that's just, it'll make more sense. Natural gas, which is important to generate electricity, natural gas is not, doesn't have the same problem as, as shale oil. Shale gas does not have the same problem as shale oil. Um, and geologically, it's, shale gas is much less rare, more abundant than oil. So we can power electric cars with natural gas all day long. You know, we still need to burn something. Um, so, I mean, I, I could see how a couple of years ago, I thought, wow, Elon Musk's timing is just off because he was really growing Tesla when oil prices were cheap. But, you know, giving that, that uh, what I was just saying about how I can envision price of oil rising dramatically um, on the other side of this revelation that, you know, his timing would have been great if he, uh, if this would have happened, you know, five years ago. <laughs> the electric cars, you know, it's, it's obviously here to stay. Yeah. So Scott, Sort of in conclusion to this, this has been a very enlightening conversation for me. Uh, I'm still processing it, but there's a lot of investors who listen to this podcast and there's a lot of people who are going to say, holy shit, this is a big opportunity. Do you have any advice for people sitting at home that might want to get exposure to oil or gas um, and not get burnt by what could potentially be a very volatile situation? Yeah. Trade futures with that leverage and put stops in. <laughs> um, Fair enough. Well, I think the key is to catch the bottom. Uh, catch, you, you know, catching the bottom, catching the falling knife is obviously, you know, there's horror stories about that. But if you time this bottom right um, correctly, if you time the bottom correctly uh, for, the, for the winning companies, the companies who have material assets of high enough quality and the potential to develop them to be profitable at any commodity price, which requires my help, um, those, those companies will return. But then I like the idea of being long 2021 20, crude futures, Brent futures, 2022, right. 2021. 
Nick, any any comments here? Anything you want to add? I, I don't think so. That's all from my end. All right, Scott. Well, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule today and sitting down and chatting with us. I think we're going to have to get you back on here soon because we're in a very um, very volatile situation. And I imagine what's going to be going on in the world in six weeks from now could be very different than what's going on in the world today. So we'd love to well, have you back better. in here and, and get <laughs> and get updated on on what you see happening. But any last comments for the viewers? Anything you think people should be thinking about? Um, no, I thank you very much for having me on uh, and uh, letting me express my passions. Uh, I, I've been wrapped up in this industry and this concept for a long time, uh, trying to be an agent of change and um, hopefully we'll get there. Um, but uh, I think that the oil industry and all these companies in their defense, it was a new kind of reservoir um, and it took a learning curve and we're really still trying to climb that curve. Um, so, you know, it's not that the oil companies are evil or anything like that. Um, and also, um, the fracking, there is a nice synergy between economic or uh, environmental concerns and the fracking. And I just think I'd, I'd like to just throw in the notion here that when you frack a well, the reality is it costs you money to pump that water and that sand down into the earth. So you don't want to, you don't want, companies don't um, make disasters when they frack. It's expensive to make a disaster because you'd have to pump a lot more than you need. Um, so fracking is, is, it consumes a lot of energy, but it's just sand and water and it doesn't affect the ground supply. So I, I just thought I'd make that plug in there because I know there's a lot of propaganda outside about, you know, fracking is bad and, you know, states are banning fracking, but it's really just sand and water, you know. And the sand is there, so when you crack the rock, the sand holds open the crack when you're done pumping. It's nothing. It's nothing crazy. Nothing dangerous. I mean, it's dangerous to because the pressure's involved, but it's all it's all two miles under the ground. So it's not going to be causing earthquakes or seismic issues in a region, is what I think you're saying too. Well, not the fracking, but those those seismicity events in Oklahoma and things like that. That's from disposing water. So a lot of oil operations uh, okay. inject water into the ground. The majority of that seismicity has been related to the injection of water, um, which is happening in, in greater amounts you know, with the shale revolution. So that, that itself is something that is a problem. But the actual fracking of a well, you, you know, you're, you're trying your best to crack a rock a little bit that's two miles underground. Um, it's, nowhere, you know, it's not gonna be a problem for groundwater supplies. It, it, it does, those cracks don't grow that high and they're expensive to make. So companies only make as much crack as they need to make. So, All right. That was the pitch to try to promote the oil industry as being responsible. Thanks a lot, Scott, and appreciate you, you coming in today or having a chat today, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Nick. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Talk to you later. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. If you're interested in getting access to the biggest deals and best opportunities in the mining and metals industry, go to capitalistexploits.at and sign up for Resource Insider now.